Amelioro next on Thought Press. Halloween is past, but its legend lives on. We have two stories about it one about Halloween's history and legend and how it's evolved over the years. You'll also hear some old tales from Halloween's past from northern Vermont. Get ready for some frights. <laughs> During this program, we also take a look at President Bush's new approval rating. It's at its lowest ever, and this doesn't help the other issues the White House has had to deal with lately. The President makes a step to fight bird flu. Also, what role do American Muslims play, and how are they struggling in the post 9-11 world? Finally, baby boomers have a new investment scheme, and it has to do with cars. All this next on Thought Press. I'm Andy Otto. Thanks for listening. Whether on your commute or at home, ThoughtPress brings things together for you on demand and whenever you decide. It's not just news, we have stories that will enrich. While Halloween's past, we'll look at the history of the holiday and hear some frightening tales from an expert storyteller. But first, a new ABC News Washington Post poll finds American public support for President Bush is now at an all time low. Only 39% of Americans approve of what the president is doing. Politicians say this was a bad week for the White House. This has been a bad week. The uh, nominee for the Supreme Court withdrew. You had an indictment of the chief of staff of the vice president. You had uh, the 2,000 milestone mark in deaths in Iraq. But it's, to be honest with you, politically, this is not anything that can't be overcome. Even ethics has seen to have declined, according to Americans, by a 3 to 1 ratio. The majority believes the indictment of senior White House aide Lewis Libby signals broader ethical problems in the Bush administration. Mr. Libby, who has resigned as the vice president's chief of staff, was indicted in connection with the ongoing investigation into who publicly revealed the identity of a covert CIA officer two years ago. Senate Minority Leader Democrat Harry Reid thinks the president should not praise Mr. Libby. He should apologize. The, the vice president should apologize. They should come clean with the American public. Republican Senator John Cornyn. You know, a lot of speculation, conjecture, people who actually were uh, trying to uh, use this, of course, is to the president's political disadvantage. I think they're going to be disappointed by the fact that this appears to be limited to a single individual. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle agree that the White House is at a critical juncture. Democratic Senator Charles Schumer said he is pessimistic that improvements will come out of the current environment. They are at a real turning point. Thus far, they've admitted no mistakes at all. That's not a good sign or a good attitude. Where do you stand in these poll numbers? Your emails or thoughts can be sent to thoughtpress at gmail.com. If you search hard enough, you'll probably find a local eatery or place that'll have a sign saying something like Saturday Night Cruising. It's becoming more and more popular, classic cars. Americans have always had a love affair with the automobile, but now with the volatility of the stock market, classic automobiles are becoming a sort of investment for many baby boomers. Stuart Cohen reports. 
Antique cars are more popular than ever in the United States, and while America's automakers have been struggling lately to sell new cars, the ones they built 30, 40, and even 50 years ago are selling like never before. In the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s, Detroit's Woodward Avenue was like a scene out of the movie American Graffiti, with drive-in restaurants and hot rod cars cruising the street all night long. Now the kids of that era are aging baby boomers, trying to recapture their youth. And like Sherry and William Billings, who own a 1967 Chevrolet Camaro, they have the spare cash to do it. Kids got through college. <laughs> That's basically it. I mean, we were in the cars years ago, but then you know the kids came along, the college came along, and now they're on their own. So we're living a little bit. But it's not just nostalgia that's driving this trend. Chuck Herkowitz has a 1964 Ford Thunderbird convertible, and he expects more than just a pleasant drive from his old car. I have a 1958 uh, Chevy Impala convertible, also. The Impala, which is a very rare car. Uh, we got a very good buy on it, and it's doubled in value. So I probably made more money on these two cars than I would if I if I were to、uh, invest in the market. I think a lot of it is the frustration that's happened with people who were involved in the、uh, the stock market run up related to tech stocks, and、um, they saw their shares disappear overnight, and what they had left was bupkis. Dave Kinney is one of the top antique car appraisers in the United States and an analyst for Sports Car Market magazine. He says wary investors are now looking for something less volatile than stocks and a lot more fun. They can't manipulate an Enron or a Tyco、uh, like some others can and do,、uh, but they sure can have something that's substantial when they have a 1967. Uh, big block 427 Corvette convertible. According to the National Auto Dealers Association, the increase in demand for old Corvettes, Mustangs, Thunderbirds, and the like has pushed the average price for a classic car to around fifty thousand dollars. That's up forty percent since 2000, and more than twice the price of many 2005 models. Some muscle cars of the 60s and 70s, like Plymouth Roadrunners and Barracudas, are even bringing record prices in the millions. One thing that's helped turn car collecting from a niche hobby to a mainstream investment vehicle is the internet. When I started with eBay three years ago,、uh, our annualized rate was about three billion dollars a year. We're now at 14.3 billion dollars a year. Steve Haas is the senior manager for the collector car division at eBay. He says the internet auction site now sells an antique car every four seconds. Not too many years ago, if you wanted to find an old Spitfire or an Alfa Romeo, you may look forever locally in the paper, or cars parked on the street with for sale signs, or car club events, and you may go months without finding what you want. Today on eBay, there's so many vehicles listed. You're probably going to find what you want very quickly. There have been other collector car price bubbles before, but with millions more baby boomers still driving toward that age when they'll have the spare cash to try to recapture their youth, this boom isn't likely to run out of gas anytime soon. I'm Stuart Cohen in Detroit. Sure, Halloween's passed, but it doesn't mean we can't talk about it. It's now celebrated all over the world, and believe it or not, it's still scary. Here's Andrew Barrick. In the stillness of a moonlit night, you're by yourself. 
lost in the woods, and you're frightened. Up ahead, a graveyard. Funeral music. These are the spooky sounds heard in many theatrical haunted houses and in horror movies, which are popular in the United States around Halloween. Experts trace Halloween, essentially a costumed parody of horror and fright, to the ancient pagan wintertime festival of the Celtics, known as Samhain, many centuries ago. Co-opted by the Catholic Church before the Middle Ages, the celebration was renamed Halloween to honor Christian saints. Halloween expert Nicholas Rogers. We've made it a secular holiday. It's no longer really a religious holiday. It still ha- carries some of the, I suppose, supernatural mystique of the old holiday when people believed in magic and witches and, and witchcraft. Mr. Rogers, the author of the book Halloween, From Pagan Ritual to Party Night, says that until more recently in the United States, Halloween had generally been a light-hearted event, a night of fun for children to get dressed up and pretend. I think in the 50s, there was an attempt to try and, in a way, kind of infantilize the holiday to emphasize it as a kiddies' night. And that was the sort of origin of what we call trick-or-treating, really, that began really in earnest in the 50s, particularly in the North American suburbs. Trick-or-treating is the child's ritual of putting on a costume and visiting homes in the neighborhood for gifts of candy. The phrase trick-or-treat implies the child threatens a prank if he or she doesn't receive a treat of candy. Each year there are always some children, especially teenagers, who take part in tricks, sometimes serious pranks like vandalizing property. But trick-or-treating, like Halloween itself, was, and generally remains, a parody of doing evil. Richard Lockman is a professor of sociology at the University of Albany in New York. People who celebrate this, for the most part, don't take it seriously. They don't believe in the occult. They don't believe in witches. They're just partying and, you know, wearing the costumes that are appropriate for that day. I think, you know, there are some people with various religious views who do take this seriously and are upset by it, but they're giving it a sort of seriousness that the people who actually celebrate don't share. In recent years, however, many Christian conservatives have condemned Halloween as a celebration of evil and paganism. Again, Richard Lockman. Well, I think it's part of a you know larger view that they're worried that they live in a decadent society where children aren't presented with clear moral values and so that they're going to be open to bad influences and parents worry that they're going to have a hard time counteracting that. You know, generally, it, you know, it's easier to express these sorts of worries by focusing on, you know, a particular sort of image. Sociologist Richard Lockman says that many parents are rightly concerned that Halloween, especially as seen in contemporary films, relaxes the taboo against promiscuity and violence. And parents can use the occasion to bring up the matter of values with their children. Among parents, you know, this is part of a larger debate of What do we let our kids do? What lines do we draw? What's worth, you know, making the effort and potentially getting into an argument with kids and saying, you know, this we won't allow. And, you know, my view that people dressing up as witches or just having fun means that that's something I wouldn't argue with my kid about. But other parents, you know, would feel, you know, it's the first step in a path that goes in a really bad place. And so that's something worth making a fuss over. There's a strong cultural pressure to celebrate Halloween, says author Nicholas Rogers. Bars and restaurants and uh, costume makers, the candy manufacturers, they're the people who gain most out of this. There is a lot more pressure, actually, to buy Halloween products. No sooner do the back-to-school products 
disappear from the supermarkets and the Halloween ones come on. I open my email and I get eBay invitations to buy costumes. So I think there's a lot of commercial pressure to, to, to spend money. Indeed, Americans spend a total of about $7 billion a year on Halloween products. Only at Christmas do they spend more. Some Halloween experts say this kind of out-of-control spending may be the most frightening part of all. I'm Andrew Barrack. Joe Citro loves Halloween. In fact, he loves dark and mysterious things in general. Adam Phillips brings us some frightening stories. October 31st is Halloween in America, a holiday when the weird and eerie sides of life are invited into our homes, mostly in the form of children, dressed in scary or unusual costumes demanding candy. But aside from this, weird and eerie tales have a long tradition in American storytelling in various regions of the country. The tiny state of Vermont in northern New England is famous for its maple syrup, its pleasant village life, and its picture-perfect mountain scenery. But according to Vermont novelist Joe Citro, author of Cursed in New England and other books, Vermont may also have a darker side. We have a, a whole spectrum of weird tales, monsters, ghosts, even vampires. Probably the oldest New England vampire story occurred in Vermont and Manchester. And in Woodstock, Vermont, a vampire was allegedly killed and buried in the village square. But, says Mr. Citro, that's not all. There's a fantastic, venerable story from the northern reaches of Vermont about how the wretchedly poor hill farmers got through the grueling Vermont winters. They had devised a kind of a folk remedy where they could actually freeze the elderly and infirm and put them to sleep like hibernating bears over the duration of the winter. And then, with another secret process, thaw them out and wake them up come spring. Do you think that's the basis of the vampire of legends? Um, I suspect not. Um, I think the freezing the elderly is maybe a bit more rooted in old-time burial practices. When people died in the wintertime, the ground was too frozen to bury them. So they would be actually stored in vaults until, until spring and the ground softened up. So I think some creative Yankee yarn spinner just came up with the idea of sticking them in the vaults and then rather than burying them, waking them up. One story, well known to Vermonters and tourists alike, involves a covered wooden bridge in Stowe, Vermont, called the Ellen Bridge. It's named for a young woman who hung herself from its rafters one midnight in 1850, allegedly because a lover she had arranged to meet there and run away with didn't come. The story is that her spirit remains there, getting angrier and angrier as the, um, as the decades pass. People have experiences there? Frequently. In fact, of all the allegedly haunted spots in Vermont, I get the most reports of strange happenings on that bridge, from people's hats being blown off on windless days to uh, cold spots on hot days, warm spots on cold days. In the old days, the people used to tell about animals crossing the bridge. They'd be scratched by uh, unseen claws. Mr. Citro has sometimes been able to interview people who have been directly involved in weird Vermont occurrences. 
in Dummerston, Vermont, which is right near Brattleboro, Vermont. The farmer who owned the Honeymoon Valley Farm came out to milk the cows one morning and found that 26 of his 29 heifers were dead. And examination proved that they had been killed by electricity. But no source of electricity could be discovered. What's even eerier is that one of the reports said that the cows were in a half circle with feed still in their mouth, uh, implying that the, um, the deaths had come suddenly. There was no sign of a struggle. Recently, I talked to um, the farmer and his wife, and they said that they had buried the cows in a big hole. They just dug a big hole and pushed all the bodies in and covered it up. But no grass or corn or anything would grow over the spot where they buried the cows. I think there's no question that it happened. I think the question is, what happened? Why do you like these stories so much? I mean, why are you so intrigued about it? On the surface, I think it's because um, I grew up in Vermont with a father who was quite interested in the local ghost stories and the tales of the local murders. But I think in a more psychoanalytical level, I think I'm looking for some proof that we are more than just meat that there is a spiritual dimension to us and that there is mystery. And of the mysteries, some can be solved, but the ones that interest me are the ones that can't. Vermont storyteller Joe Citro is a novelist and the author of several books about New England lore, including Ghosts, Ghouls, and Unsolved Mysteries and Cursed in New England. He spoke with me at his home in Burlington, Vermont. I'm Madam Phillips. Okay, enough about Halloween. It's scary, but our world is a scary place, too. Since September 11th, lives have changed, and also for Muslims, American Muslims. Last year, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, received 400 complaints mainly surrounding civil rights violations. Corey Saylor, CARE's Government Affairs Director, says part of the problem with law enforcement targeting Muslims is because of the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act and the ensuing surveillance that we've received from law enforcement has certainly put a chilling effect on the Muslim community. Many Muslims are afraid to say anything one way or another purely because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. Daniel Sutherland, the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Officer at the Department of Homeland Security, says his department tries to resolve problems as they arise. One issue for American Muslims is name mix-ups, maybe with a name on a watch list at the airport. Sutherland says there's room for improvement. We are trying to proactively resolve concerns that come to us and look to make changes in our policy that help us to really target the people we need to target while not spending resources on people who are our friends and are working with us. But what about September 11th? That made big changes with Muslims in America, didn't it? Bob Doty reports. Many analysts argue that it was September 11th that motivated most U.S. Muslim civil rights organizations to speak out against branding all Muslims as terrorists and explain that the vast majority of Muslims in the U.S. are peaceful, law-abiding citizens. 
But journalist Janaev Abdo, who is writing a book about Muslims in America, blames American Muslims for failing to speak out early on against negative stereotyping and racial profiling that oftentimes led to their being the focus of law enforcement investigations. Before 9-11, they were not accustomed to being public voices. They often did not write editorials in newspapers. They didn't have any form of media that extended beyond their own communities. They're becoming a lot wiser now. But before 9-11, Muslims basically didn't really exercise their right to speak publicly. Some analysts concede that the U.S. Muslim community as a whole is still developing its media relations skills. But Ahmed Yunus, National Director for the Muslim Public Affairs Council in Washington, rejects the claim that American Muslims were not actively engaged before September 11th, insisting that they have been combating extremism and reaching out to other Americans for years. Before 9-11, we used to fight to have discussions about Islam and Muslims, to have discussions about the American pluralism, to have discussions about counterterrorism. Now everybody wants to talk, everybody wants to discuss it. So the Johnny-come-lately in this situation is the average American and the average American government official. It is not the average Muslim or the average Arab American on the street. Homeland Security's Daniel Sutherland agrees that American Muslims have long been active in the fight against terrorism and extremism by reaching out to the federal government and law enforcement. They want to participate in their country as well. And we saw that reaction, for example, after Hurricane Katrina. We had a number of very generous offers from Arab Americans and Muslim American organizations to try to help with the relief efforts. And now, of course, they're doing a great job with the Pakistan earthquake and recovery there as well. So I think people need to recognize that we're all in this together. This is a large community of Americans who want to work together on this process of keeping our country safe and secure and on the right track. I'm Bob Doty. Remember Corey Saylor from CARE? We'd like to be able to tell that side of the story to the larger Muslim world. Because the larger Muslim world, they learn about America through watching our movies. And that's not usually the best picture of our country. It makes us look very violent and sort of very indulgent. Equally, they learn through us through the news, just like, unfortunately, too many Americans learn about Islam through the news. Many say that Muslims must speak out and eventually will become an integral part of American society. Here's the deal with the bird flu. President Bush is asking the U.S. Congress to spend more than $7 billion to help prepare for a possible pandemic. $3 billion of that would go toward the acceleration of technology that would ensure every American have a vaccine within six months of a pandemic start. He also wants Americans educated about it. You can check out a new government website, pandemicflu.gov, or head to our website for the link. It's thoughtpress.blogspot.com. I'm Andy Otto. Thanks for listening to Thought Press. 
You may follow up with links or stories mentioned on this program through our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. If you have suggestions or comments or would like to be heard on ThoughtPress, call us at 206-33-THINK or email thoughtpress at gmail.com. Our number again is 206-338-4465. Our audio is hosted by archive.org and select content is provided by Voice of America. Don't forget to visit our site, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. Thanks.